It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. On Commons People this week, what was might have been acceptable 15, 10 years ago is clearly not acceptable now. Michael Fallon falls on his sword as a sex harassment scandal claims its first scalp. At the moment, Theresa May is left wanting because Stephen Crabb is still walking around this building and I don't think he should be. Labour's Jess Phillips tells us she wants more action from the PM. And just why doesn't the government want to publish its internal reports on Brexit? Because it might actually prick this golden bubble, this balloon of the promised land of Brexit. All of this and more on Commons People. Hello and welcome to Commons People, HuffPost UK's politics podcast. This week's episode of Commons People is brought to you by Tide, the nimble small business banking service. More of that later. Now let's crack on. What a, what a 24 hours it has been in Westminster. I was settling down last night to watch the Tottenham versus Real Madrid game, thinking nothing could distract me from this. And then Michael Fallon, Sir Michael Fallon, no less, the Defence Secretary, has resigned over, well, we're not quite sure what it's over, but here's a clip of him talking to the BBC's Laura Koonsberg. Well, the culture has changed over the years. What was might have been acceptable 15, 10 years ago is clearly not acceptable now. Parliament now has to look at itself, and the Prime Minister has made very clear that uh, uh, um, the conduct needs to be improved and uh, we need to protect the staff of Westminster against any particular allegations of harassment. Let's let's dive straight in with this. So, Julie Hartley Brewer, 15 years ago, he touched Julie Hartley Brewer's knee. She told him, get off my knee, essentially, or I'm going to punch you. Fast forward 15 years, and that all sort of came out. Julie Hartley Brewer said, look, I'm not a victim. I don't want to be caught up in this. She, I think she used the word witch hunt, which mm-hmm. is, you know, what she described this kind of desire to find people in Westminster who have been sort of sexually inappropriate with women. Um, and then a couple of days, all men, and then a couple of days later, Michael Fallon resigns. Uh, let's ask the man who knows these things, Mr. Paul War. What, why is he gone? I'm still a little bit confused. He said, this, is there more to come out, basically? He's gone because he couldn't be confident, in the words of friends of his, he couldn't be confident that there wouldn't be more stories that would emerge that were similar to the Hartley Brewer incident. But similar, uh, whether it was touching by the sounds of it, uh, he couldn't be—he couldn't guarantee that similar stories wouldn't emerge. Now, obviously, one story he could possibly just get away with because the, the so-called victim says she's not a victim, but someone else may interpret exactly the same behaviour as completely inappropriate. Don't forget, he repeatedly touched her on the knee. It was three, four times. It wasn't a one-off, like a glancing you know, mistake. And she had to yell at him, I'll punch you in the face if you keep doing that. No woman does that unless they actually actually genuinely do feel as though they're threatened, let's be honest. And so other women might have viewed exactly the same behaviour in a different way. And it sounds to me, from talking to his friends, that actually he was worried he'd done it, you know, not just once, but several times. 
Theresa May, at the beginning of the week, she didn't say that she explicitly had confidence in him. But, you know, there was an opportunity there for her to perhaps seize initiative on this and perhaps ask him to go, anything like that. But it's not happened that way, is it? It's happened that Michael himself, so Michael himself has decided to step down. It, 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 is Theresa May a little bit behind on this, Kate? What do you think? Do you think Theresa May... I think she's she's in such a precarious position anyway. It's going to be very hard for her to sort of say to one of her key allies, you've got to go. Um, so kind of, I mean, I guess the government that's in power when this kind of thing happens is always the one that's going to take the fall more so. Like with the exp expenses scandal, Labour was in power at the time and they are the ones who basically bore the brunt of, isn't this terrible? So I don't know if she's sort of behind the curve, um, but I feel like she's in a very, very tricky position. And if anybody else has to go, as it were, if more revelations are going to come out, which we might see in the Sunday papers, I reckon, um, then it could be really, really problematic. I, I was so excited at the beginning because of what's happened. I forgot to introduce that Paul War is here, as we just spoke to Kate Forrester, and also Rachel Wearmouth. Rachel, were you surprised that Fallon went yesterday and not maybe when this sort of came out at the beginning of the week? It took him obviously a couple of days to think about it. Do you think it was the case of him just worried about being nervous every time the papers dropped, he might be another name there? Um, well, the, the, the ultimate answer to that is, I suppose we, we actually don't know what's come behind his decision-making. We know that he's, he's sat down, he's had a chat with Theresa May, and I don't know if at that point she's kind of said, well, I think you should resign. We don't, know, we don't actually know what's been said be between them. So um, I think this all feeds into the narrative that she's com completely powerless anyway. So, I mean, that's the first thing that you tend to under understand about most of Theresa May's actions at the moment is that she's not in a position to do a great deal. So regardless of what's being said between them, it's going to be seen that way. So Sir Michael's gone. Let's talk about what Theresa May is in a position to do, and that is to, to put a new Defence Secretary in. Today, Thursday, she's appointed Chief Whip Gavin Williamson. I mean, there are real echoes of House of Cards here, both the original... British mm -hmm. one and the American ringmate where the, the, the chief whip goes, me, Prime Minister? Well, I'd never <laughs> thought of myself, if you insist. Is that is that how it's gone down, Paul, do you think? There's a lot of anger in the tea room amongst Tory MPs and amongst ministers. I talked to, I mean, my phone's been pinging with lots of texts and also I've, I've met ministers this morning um, who are very upset at the elevation of the chief whip because they say, look, it, it just sends out the wrong message, not necessarily to the public, but to the party, that if you're a whip and you've got something over someone, you're supposed to have this relationship of trust, not just fear, with members of parliament. And that trust is kind of broken if you think, actually, if the, my whip is going to, um, having exploited a situation, will then profit from it and get an elevation, then that undermines a sort of whip standing amongst MPs. But there's, there's a bigger worry, which is that... Actually, Theresa May has missed a massive opportunity to take a grip of the sex harassment issue by failing to appoint senior women to post. I mean, in my opinion, she should have appointed Penny Morden as Defence Secretary and she should have appointed Anne Milton as Chief Whip. So, and put Gavin Williamson somewhere else, you know, a, a Minister of State role, let him learn his trade. But that hasn't happened. And as a result, you've got a female prime minister who looks like, as one minister said to me, that, you know, it's it's she's a creature of the men she's supposed to be leading. And so you've got these men in grey suits are being elevated. Um, and it's really, really strange. One of the problems with that is 
um, her allies say actually she's played it quite cannily. These are two kind of non-entities. They're both safe pair of hands. You know, it's all steady as it goes. All that matters was just steadying the ship. But, you know, if you're a prime minister in Theresa May's position, as Rachel said, you know, where every day is kind of rocky and people are talking about your authority, why not just seize the day and grab the chance to show your authority? A uh, Tory MP texted me earlier on, or I was texting him, and he replied basically saying it's a ridiculous appointment and Theresa May became yet weaker still today. Although some Tory MPs have actually welcomed the appointment and they think government is a good a good guy, but it just seems to me that, that this week, as the sex harassment stuff has broken, for example, when I was at the briefing with the Prime Minister's official spokesman on Monday, all the stuff that Theresa May was doing was all very reactive to things. There wasn't a lot of things that were proactive. I never got a sense at any point she was trying to get in in head of the story. She, was never, she wasn't saying, right, I want every cabinet minister to sit down for 24 hours and really think about what they've done and come to me in 24 hours' time with any issue and we'll, and we'll, you know, and we'll, we'll, we'll sort of work through it or we'll you know, fess up now and have an amnesty. I thought, why not do that? And exactly the same with this appointment. Penny Morden, I think, would have been perfect for this role. She was a, she's a naval reservist. She's hugely popular amongst the armed forces. She's got a bit of public profile. She's a woman, which I think would help at the moment. This current climate showed you're trying to get more women in senior positions. It just seems that Theresa May is, again, I don't know why I'm surprised by this, politically tone deaf. It also comes just um, at the same time as Lisa and Andy raised some serious questions about the WHIPS office as well um, during PMQs. Um, so it seems like there's been no direct response to that either, which just lets the questions continue really about her authority and i think the, the, the other problem that pm's got is, is what what i've got the feedback from uh, people about uh, gavin williamson today is that the tory european research group which is the, the sort of hardline brexiteers don't like him okay so that's a big black mark if you're going to be chief if, if you're going to be chief whip who's then promoted to being defense secretary um and equally you've got lots of former cameroons who don't like him because they feel that he's you know, not trustworthy and that he's inexperienced. And don't forget, this is a guy who's going to be Defence Secretary. He's never served in the military. He's going to be going overseas. Not all Defence Secretaries have. No, not all, not all of them have. No, that's true. But most, if you're going to go straight into the Ministry of Defence, the, the point is that you learn your trade. So you go through the junior ranks and then you become Defence Secretary. You have a junior role of Minister for the Did Disabled Fallon? Veterans or whatever. Did Michael Fallon have that? No, but he had ministerial and cabinet ex okay. He had ministerial experience. Yeah. What you've got with, with Gavin um, Williamson is somebody who's never run a department, as one minister said to me. So he doesn't know, A, how to run a department, a spending department a massive spending department. He doesn't have any foreign experience. It, it, you know, as someone said to me, imagine him meeting the king of Saudi Arabia. Where would he start? He's got no idea how to handle himself. Abroad. Do you like my tarantula? Um, you know, and, and he's got very little um, experience in the military field. So in, on so many levels, there are other people who are well qualified. And what you come out of this is that Theresa May is so weak, she's relying on people who are really in a very tight inner circle. And that's Gavin Williamson, who happens to be uh, a very good ally and friend of Gavin Barwell, her chief of staff and also Gavin Williamson helped run her leadership campaign didn't he in yeah. last year Kate I was going to say I can't decide whether Esther McVeigh's appointment is a good or bad idea because she's like a proper pantomime villain of so the she's left. now deputy chief she's, she's now deputy, deputy chief, chief whip yeah. um which I didn't expect actually um we thought for a bit that they were going to make her chief whip to replace Gavin Williamson this morning when she went into number 10 um she is absolutely hated by the left. She's like a proper sort of pantomime villain character from her time at DWP and also particularly in Merseyside from the when she put out a tweet during the Hillsborough um the Hillsborough 
memorial service. She put out a party political tweet that was really, really stuck in the head. Of she, a was lot of MP for she was an MP for Wirral West, West at yeah. the time. Yeah. Anyway, just can't decide. It's, it's an interesting point because actually a lot of Tory MPs like um, Esther McVeigh precisely because the left hate her because they see her as being someone who's undeniably working class, streetwise, you know, a, a, a powerful sort of forceful woman in politics who has suffered sexism from people like, you know, John McDonnell saying that she should be lynched. And uh, she's got a lot of support within the Tory party. And in a way, she's one of the ways that this government can try and connect again with those voters that they need to win. The problem for Esther McVeigh is she did a chicken run from Wirral to, you know, very leafy Tatton where she's got a very safe seat. Now, of course, lots of men have done that over time. So that's nothing new, but... I do think her appointment actually might be a shrewd move because you need, particularly now, that's why I thought Theresa May should have appointed a woman as chief whip, but you certainly need a deputy chief whip who's a woman. Um, prior to this, there were two guys doing the jobs. Um, and a woman who can say, look, we're not going to tolerate this sex harassment stuff at all. There is genuinely going to be zero tolerance. And Julian Smith, who's a new chief whip, once flicked my parliamentary pass. Flicked it? I was standing outside a, a room committee corridor where Tories and Peas were having a meeting and he came outside and he went up to me and who are you? He flicked my past. Well, that's what oh, everybody's asking uh, about. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah exactly. exactly. So there we are. <laughs> there we are. Uh, let's move on to, obviously, the, the big story this week has been the culture more broadly in Westminster of um, sexual misconduct, sexual harassment. Uh, there's a clip of Ruth Davison uh, today. The dam has broken uh, on this now. And these male-dominated professions, overwhelmingly male-dominated professions, where the boys' own locker room culture has prevailed and it's all been a bit of a laugh, has got to stop. Are we going to have a, a big clear-out? I mean, let's talk, let's talk about this list been doing around. Let's not mention any names on the list because, my God, we don't want to get sued. But a lot of these stuff on the list, it was it was hearsay, it was gossip, some of it was stuff about stuff, sort of consensual relationships, some of it was a bit more dodgy. Uh, Dominic Raab, who's out himself as being on the list and denies it, what he was on the list for, said that actually the list itself is a form of harassment. I mean... I, I don't know quite how to get my head around all of this, and maybe I'm not the right person to get my head around it all. I, I, I mean, what this stuff about sex in Westminster has been going on for a long, long time. The Harvey Weinstein thing is obviously brought to the fore. What needs to change, and is anything going to change? I think the danger with this list and this kind of list mentality and lumping consensual and possibly weird things in with things that are really not okay is you are giving people who want to sweep this kind of issue aside an in to do that. Um, you give them an opportunity to say, oh, well, you can't, you know, you can't do anything now. You can't say anything. People can't even go for a drink. You know, if, if two people who like each other can't even go for a drink. So I think there's a real danger of lumping all those things in together. Um, and I think it undermines the wider point that there really does need to be a change in attitude and a sea change, as many people have called for, across not just Westminster, it's, uh, local government politics is a problem as well, I believe. I mean, it, there is the cliches in there of the, the kind of older, grey-haired MP with the sort of younger female researcher and taking out for drinks and that kind of stuff. I mean, is that the kind of... I, I mean, I, I sort of even know how to phrase the question, really, but how, how, does, how does that kind of thing change? Does it need to have much more clearer guidance on what you should be doing with your staff, how you should be doing it? Is that a good way to go? Um... I actually slightly disagree with Kate on this one. I think kind of the the, the broader way that we look at it is, is kind of maybe is a little bit more helpful because I kind of think there is a big conversation to be had about how um, people, particularly in any workplace, kind of should react with each other. Um, and I think there, there really is something in 
the the line that people say that it, it's about power and it's not actually about sex and it's how people ab abuse that power and I think um, the sort of broader scope it has the better really. Well it's a good point because actually HuffPost this week has done stories on actually taking it out of Westminster and saying actually this is a real problem in lots of workplaces and it's important for us not to forget that this is, we can easily get obsessed with the House of Cards style drama of it all and glamorise it when actually it's a really really fundamental problem for a lot of women in the workplace and as Rachel says it's about power ultimately and in my opinion unless you get more women MPs more women ministers then it, it you know that's the only solution because uh, at the same time, men also have got to step up to the plate. It's quite interesting that this week there were a couple of men in the, the Commons, uh, Labour guys, um, and uh, the MP for, for Bristol, who said actually he'd overheard some of his male colleagues suggesting this was all, you know, a bit of bants. And actually he said it's, it's the role of men to call it out as well. So there's an equal responsibility. It's not, it shouldn't all be up to women. But um, I one curious Machiavellian theory I heard was that Gavin Williamson was behind the original list. Now, I know that oh sounds mad, God. but, you know, in, in the world in which we're operating right now, who knows? That would be a long game. I caught up with a Labour MP, Jess Phillips, who's spoken out about this kind of thing for a long time, long before this came up. Um, and I started off by asking her um, what she wanted to see change in Westminster. What I want to see is I want to see, at the very least, it, for at least this period now, while this is, seems to be bubbling up, is for voluntary sector, specialist sexual violence advice and a confidential helpline to be made available to people so that they can disclose, feel confident, feel com that a specialist trained person is going to deal with that and that they're going to be believed. It won't necessarily lead to loads of people being kicked out of here or anything, but I do think that, and I'm not after a scalp, I'm not after a party political um, movement, but I do think that if things are found out and people get away with things, impunity in this place will get worse, not better. And for me, at the moment, Theresa May is left wanting because Stephen Crabb is still walking around this building and I don't think he should be. Let's talk about Stephen Crabb because now some people would look at some allegations that have come out recently about things that have been very, very serious. Yeah. People like Bex Bailey is very, very brave to come forward. And then they'd look at what Stephen Crabb did and they, some people would say, well, he just sent some dirty texts to a 19-year-old to a who was, you know, about the age of consent, all that kind of stuff. Why should Stephen Crabb then, why is he the person who should be, should be not walking around this building anymore? Because... If Stephen Crabb was a teacher in, uh, you know, in your children's primary school and somebody had come in to do work experience or some a new teaching assistant had applied for a job and they were a teenager themselves and then one of the teachers had sent them sexual messages afterwards and we don't know what's in those messages. It, I suppose it could be innocent, although apparently they are not. And that person would be fired in any other walk of life where we are dealing with vulnerable... MPs deal with vulnerable people every single day. MPs deal with children every single day. We deal with vulnerable adults. We have to have proper rules that say that we cannot use our power, we cannot use our positions to take advantage and act entitled to the young people who work in here and Stephen Crabb, if he was a teacher, if he was a doctor, if he'd worked at a college, any other walk of life, he'd have been sacked. The fact is that he doesn't know, does he? And this person went for a job with him and 
they might have we don't know the text they, she might have encouraged him she might not have done we don't know but so so again some people would say that maybe you just want a scalp and this is why you're I definitely don't want a scalp and you know I interview young people all the time there are volunteers and people who want to come and work in my office all the time um, and, and sometimes they will text me afterwards and say nice things to me and be like oh you know thanks very much for the opportunity I don't then tell them my wildest sexual fantasies because I'm a grown up uh, and I have a responsibility as somebody with power to use that power appropriately now this is his second infraction with a teenager. Now, she has obviously come forward, otherwise we wouldn't know about it. So she's obviously was uncomfortable with the situation. So it's just totally and utterly disgraceful, his behaviour. It is the behaviour of an entitled man who thinks that the young people who come and work here are his playthings. And then the next thing that I asked Jess was about the, the different kind of power dynamics. And she talks about this here. So if you were a 16-year-old who's worked on a campaign, and that, that's very, very common, especially during election time, you, you know, imagine just a slight touch on your knee. might seem like absolutely nothing. and But you, you don't say anything because, you know, it would be awkward and there's other people around and you don't want to make a fuss. And this person is, is, is your boss as well. So you just, you just let it go. And... And that's what every single woman in the whole bloody world has let that go. And then that person, for some reason in their head, that's a signal to them to maybe do the next thing. So invite you around for dinner. And you might think, well, I sort of have to go or I'm, you might want to go. And then it snowballs. And what you've got there is a general culture where something that seems so minor and so nothing and was probably intended as nothing... If you have all the power in the situation and the other person does not have the power to call you out and say, do you know what, I like you, but I'm not interested in this, then there's something wrong and we should be able to recognise it. Most men are pretty good at this. Most. My husband always talks to me about how if he is walking down a dark street and there is a woman on their own, he will cross the road away from her to stop her feeling that he might be a threat. He will try and give her space, not because he's in any way predatory, not because she might not feel it, but he knows that there is a power dynamic that will these people... Why do the people in here not know it? Here's Jess telling me what this is not about. We should, what we shouldn't do is this ridiculous, well, no-one can be friends with each other, no-one can cuddle each other. Now, you and I, Erin, we know each other quite well. So in, in the corridor, if you were to see me and give me a cuddle, having not seen me for a while, that is not sexual harassment. And I'm not going to break, like, glass all over the floor and be, like, howling rape. And people who are saying that that is the, what this is going to lead to are only trying to discredit the voices of women. Have you been disappointed by the reaction of, uh, of MPs in this space to all of this? Uh, to some, most actually, I think, and the vast majority who are decent human beings on both sides have, have had the right reaction and been rightfully upset and wanting to take action. But, of course, there is still a lot of uh, views that, you know, we have to be careful this isn't going to be a witch hunt, and I've overheard people saying witch hunt. I've overheard people calling me hysterical, that, you know, we're not going to be able to have fun with each other anymore. Well, you know, if you don't know the line between fun and sticking your hands in my knickers, then I don't want to have a laugh with you, if I'm perfectly honest. Yeah, just Phillips there saying that it's still OK for me to hug her when I see her in committee corridor, which is good. <laughs> well, you know, it's a really important point, and, and Kate touched on this. You know... I, in part of me thinks, what is, 
what is so hard to grasp for some men about this issue, which is, you know, it's not hard. It's really not hard. If, if, a, if a woman is feeling uncomfortable, you should know that straight away. You know the boundary between flirtation and going much further. It's not hard. And what I don't understand is everyone keeps saying somehow it's really hard. It's not. It's clear. Of course, they know it is yeah. as well. Sorry, Rachel. I was going to say, I think it's quite patronising to men. And I know um, everyone went crazy about Newsnight last night and there's lots of things to um, criticise that programme for, not not least that... Um, well, anyway, um, the panel was mainly men and it was so interesting to hear what they had to, to say about it. And I know there was a lot of criticism for that, but I think one of the... It's really important that we actually hear from men and a lot of normal working-class men on how they're interpreting this whole thing okay so i spoke to liz savile roberts this morning who is the westminster leader of plaid cymru um and she said you know she's very clear that these pe- these are people these are men mps um who pass legislation they live you know as functioning adults they drive cars they have families they you know they're perfectly capable um we should not have to be setting out you know written guidelines for people on how to behave particularly people who are you know setting setting laws for other workplaces on how they're supposed to deal with these matters, we should be able to be confident in in MPs to take responsibility for their own actions. But I also think it starts in school. I mean, I do think Mm. actually that's why there's a debate from Maria Miller today about sexual assault and harassment on girls in schools. And it's only at that age where these men are going to actually have to learn at a very early age what is consent. I, I personally, it's not hard to me, but obviously, like like Rachel says, for some men, they think it's a blurred line. They can't do certain things. But the way around it is having a whole generational shift and saying, look, this is what consent means. You should know from an early age. I think the, the wider problem as well is that young young men and young boys at school, quite often, and this is this was a problem when I was at school, and I think it still is to an extent. Things have got better. But the language that is available um, to young men to talk about sexuality and relationships is all it's all very sort of aggressive um there's no there's no kind of emotional or feelings associated side of it to talk about with their friends and i think like the attitude towards that really needs to change so i think paul's right in terms of consent lessons and things in schools can i ask a really uh, it's an obvious question but i know what my experience is like as a journalist in westminster kate rachel similar age to me so around the similar times and generation, that kind of stuff do you see, do you think that you guys get treated by MPs, by people different to how I get treated? I mean, it's kind of an obvious question, but I, I kind of want to ask it. Kate, Rachel, you know, we're all similar ages here. We've been in political journalism and journalism for a certain amount of time. Do you see the way that I'm treated, that male journalists of your age are treated as differently to the way that you're treated by people in power? Do you feel there's that difference because of your gender, because they feel that there's some kind of different dynamic at play? I don't feel as though you're necessarily treated differently, but I feel like it's much harder for women to be taken seriously and to be able to make points um, without attracting some kind of vitriol or abuse, whether it's on Twitter or, you know, people in the dreaded comment sections, um, which is less prevalent now. But I feel like it's it's okay for men, male political journalists, maybe to have a more controversial viewpoint than it might be for a female journalist. Rachel, do you feel that when you make, a, for example, a male contact, do you feel that you have to make it clear to them that this is a work thing? And, and you, or do you not feel that? Um, I've never felt that personally. I would agree with what Kate says, though. It's very difficult to be taken seriously. And I think that um, when, you're, when you're a woman, you are kind of viewed 
in, in a less serious way or you, it's easier to dismiss you. Um, I've been targeted for a lot of nasty stuff on social media, but I'm not alone in that. And I think probably the same for, for some men, but you do see women get the worst end of it, I think. It's funny because when I do paper reviews and stuff, I do it with a girl, Kate Andrews, and we sometimes we get tweeted the same thing. And the tweets that I get about, you know, not knowing what I'm talking about or, you know, looking like a 12-year-old, the stuff that she gets is a lot more sexual and a lot more... Yeah. So I can, I sort of, that's when I really notice it. Anyway, let's let's move on. Um, before we move on, I just want to just go back to our old friends Tide because they are still uh, still sponsoring us. Uh, thanks so much, that Tide. Just to remind everyone, they're, they're a mobile and web-based, web-based banking service set up to help small businesses take care of their accounts with ease, giving people one less thing to worry about. Uh, as you all know, time is money. And anything people can do to save a bit of time and keep everything nice and simple is a massive bonus. I'm sure we would all agree. Paul, would you agree with that? Totally agree. Absolutely. It's packed with handy tools, including things like automated bookkeeping, team access, expense management, and invoice assistance, which all sounds very, very important and useful uh, for people who know about these kind of things. So go to www.tide.com co forward slash people for more details about this you haven't got to wait around for weeks for approval like you do with a traditional bank uh getting set up with tide takes less than five minutes so you can do it while you're waiting for the kettle to boil or you can even do it just after you've gone on and given us some uh, a nice rating on itunes why not you have the phone we'll slip that in there i mean i like that yeah That's thank you very much thank you very much uh anyway don't worry guys we've got you a nice a nice offer to get you started uh if you visit www.tide.co forward slash people and use a promo code people your account will be 100% free for the first six months it's absolutely free for six months six months free transfers and after six months your account will become pay as you go with no monthly fees to pay ever ever isn't that good news anyway for more details www.tide.co forward slash people and make sure you use the promo code People, anyway, back to the podcast. Brexit, it's still here, everyone. It hasn't gone away. And guess what? Ministers are being forced to publish secret papers on the impact of Brexit on the UK economy after a landmark Commons defeat for the government. Uh, Labour hailed a major victory for Parliament and democracy as MPs passed an Opposition Day motion demanding that the confidential documents be handed over to a select committee. John Burko said the vote was binding and ministers should respond as soon as possible. If they don't, they could find themselves in contempt of Parliament. Here's Tory MP Anna Subri sticking it to her own government in the Commons. I genuinely say to the honourable gentleman, how on earth can he say that we shouldn't disclose all these documents uh, because it would undermine the negotiations if he hasn't seen them in the first place or even a, or even some form of summary of them. But the implication is quite clear. There's something in them that's not to be disclosed because it might actually prick this golden bubble, this balloon of the promised land of Brexit. But the Prime Minister's official spokesman today suggested the economic analysis may not be published in full, saying David Davis and Brexit Select Committee Chair Hilary Benn are in discussions about how to move forward. So this dossier, this 5,000 pages, it, Paul, yes, dossier it they've got, which have done analysis of all the different sectors of the UK economy, how Brexit's going to affect them. The government don't want to release it. Everyone's thinking, oh, it must be bad then. And now, we're told they've got to release it 
they're going to go, we're not going to release anything to undermine our negotiating position, which might be, please, God, give us a free trade deal. I know. Well, the problem with this document, and as I, as I pointed out in the in the war zone this morning, you know, a lot of people and MPs yesterday in this debate were talking about, oh, 58 different documents swirling around about different bits of the economy. From what I'm told, someone who's actually seen this, it's a massive lever arch file paper-based, which is 5,000 pages. It's not handwritten, pages, is it? 5,000 pages long. It's massive. It's, it's, it's enough to make the Hutton Inquiry and the Butler Inquiry and, and everything else look tiny. Not Chilcott. Um, <laughs> not <then> Chilcott. <laughs> um, and it's so thick that it's going to be a lot of work going through it, working out what's sensitive, what will undermine our negotiating position, etc. But, you know, you got from Anna Subri there in that clip, brilliant quip, and she was on form yesterday, there's no question. Um how this feeds into what a lot of the Tory Remainers really, really feel passionate about. And I think it's not so much that the Henry VIII clauses and all that other stuff and power grabs, this is where it really matters for them, which is government's attempt to cover up what really could happen from Brexit. And if you're not transparent with Parliament, you're not transparent with the public about what 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 is in those documents, their big fear is, look, they're really hiding from us all this negative and disastrous consequences of leaving. Now, I think following on from that, the, the, now the question is, what do they release? And, you know, it could well be that David Davis wants to redact massive parts of this thing and it could end up being a shriveled sort of weak, weird-looking document that is released. But one thing I was told was on the quiet was that actually, you because you've got... Um, the Brexit Select Committee Chairman Hilary Benn, he's a you know senior parliamentarian. He's a former he's a, he's a former cabinet minister. He's a privy councillor. There are other privy councillors on that committee, several of them, um, former ministers who've been elevated, who can be trusted to look at something on privy council terms. This might be a compromise where some of the committee gather, like four or five of them, and work with David Davis. Say actually. We, they see the whole thing and they say, actually, all right, we agree with you. You, we, you can have that. You can't have that. The problem is it's such a massive document. That might take quite a while. And the problem with that is the motion says this has got to be done virtually instantly. And because you don't have 12 weeks to respond, it's a binding motion, the speaker says. So it's speed is of the essence. But Rachel, I mean, David Davis has got a point. We don't want to be telling the EU how much, you know, how desperate we need them for our video game industry or whatever, do we? We want to keep something in the drawer. Crikey. Well, yeah, you'd think so. We're not exactly... Um, we haven't got many cars we don't, to play. We, we, yeah, we, we don't, we don't um, outnumber the people that we have to negotiate with, so it's, good, it's, a, it's a very difficult position to be in. Um, it's also worth saying that the EU's already published some of their own analyses on how it would work for them, so I don't know on what basis we would keep it back, really. Yeah, although they, as John Redwood pointed out yesterday, they're keeping some of their stuff really secret. Why should we publish ours? And that's what you hear a lot from the Eurosceptics. Yeah. But. That's what they said. Um, Labour had a question in the Lords this morning um, along these lines. Um, and Lord Callanan, who was responding for the government, said the EU have not published a similar amount of information on their side. So he's still claiming that the government wants to be as open and transparent as possible. And he, he also stressed, as Paul said, that there are a whole series of very long and very complicated documents looking at all different sectors. You know what's interesting, though, about this story, and I, the reason I love this story is because it's a sort of parliamentary geek's heaven. You know, Labour were really smart. This is a really ancient device, this thing called an humble address to Her Majesty. So, effectively, they were trying to force the government's hand, saying, you can't ignore this. It's not like an opposition day debate. It's just like, a, you know, a, a non-binding thing. We insist that through precedent, this is binding. It forces ministers to deliver papers to Parliament. And I've got to say, you've got to take your hat off to Labour. I think, And there's a few Tory MPs who had sneaking 
and respect for it yesterday for actually engineering this situation. Um, Jacob Rees-Mogg, of all people, yesterday stood up and said, actually, he welcomed this and he thought as much openness as possible. He felt there was nothing to hide. And maybe a few more Brexiteers should be a bit more like that, actually. Maybe David Davis should take note of that. That actually, maybe we don't know, but maybe some of these analyses aren't as bad as everyone thinks they are. The expectations game here could be lost by the Remainers, don't forget. And, you know, it might not be the bad news that everyone thinks it is. And the, and the Brexiteers can always dismiss them, if they are bad, as the work of Remain-loving civil servants anyway. So they could always <laughs> just spin it away, couldn't they? There was an interesting exchange yesterday in the Department of International Trade Select Committee which Liam Fox was appearing before with his chief negotiator Crawford Faulkner which is the most wonderful name in politics in my opinion Um, and there was basically the EU currently has free trade deals with about 65 other countries and the big thing is when we leave the EU do these trade deals still apply to us and what work has been done on making sure this carries on and here's Labour's Chris Leslie putting that question to Crawford Faulkner Principles of the deal they've all agreed to roll over those principles, and none of them have said that they're going to seek to renegotiate uh, any part of those princi- the principles of those agreements. They've all agreed that. They have agreed that that's what they intend to do. All I would say is that I've been around negotiations a lot, and what people say today sometimes changes tomorrow. So they're not all agreed? Well, they, they agree. People agree at a certain point of time, but they sometimes change their mind. Yeah, but if a minister of the Crown is tweeting out, all have agreed to roll over... That is not correct. So Crawford Faulkner there. I think Liam Fox wanted to punch him in the face when he said, yeah, well, we've got agreements, but they can all change their minds tomorrow. So who knows? It's not, I mean, it doesn't fill you with confidence, does it? When your own chief negotiator is going, we haven't got, quite got these nailed down yet. But I think that's part of the problem with Brexit as a whole. You know, I've been talking to civil servants and they're all saying, basically, there's a state of paralysis right now across every other department other than Brexit department. Brexit department's got all the talent, it's got all the energy, it's got all the dynamism, it's got some of the brains, and other departments feeling a bit neglected and they're saying actually we can't do anything we can't get decisions approved and select committees are finding that ministers are refusing or failing to come up with responses to select committee requests for evidence because civil servants are saying well I'm really sorry we're a bit distracted by Brexit Um, and even the foreign office in particular I know Alan Duncan's been wrapped over the knuckles by by the the foreign affairs select committee for not coming up with uh, what he should be doing. So it's across government. There's a sense of paralysis. And I, I think that is a problem. And it feeds into the other thing, the big thing we learned this week from Cabinet, where Cabinet finally said what it was going to do in the event of a, a, a no-deal Brexit and f- and talked about hiring more staff. So despite that but famous vote leave bus saying we're going to get 250 million quid back a week for the NHS. 350 million quid back for the NHS every week. It looks like we're going to spend 250 million alone just on more staff next year to cope with Brexit. And beyond that, we're going to spend 400 million uh, on other staff and preparations, one-off cost for Brexit. And including that is suddenly we're going to hire, or have to hire, up to 5,000 new um, uh, customs and, and revenue staff. And I think that's that's such a, a massive increase in staff that you, uh, when I asked the department at HMRC, they had no idea where the funding was coming well, from. Well, I mean, I could talk about customs forever. Anyone who subscribed to my Brexit brief will know that I've been I've been banging on about this for, a men- for many, many months because it's been completely underfunded and I'm glad they didn't something about it. Anyway, Paul, you distract me, but it's time for this week's quiz. Ah. You went off on one of your infamous rants. I know. Um, this is... Uh, Ronnie called, Corbett. I know, you've, you've ru- had a nice little link between. This leads on to this week's quiz, which is called Deal or No Deal, and which countries has the EU currently got a free trade deal with? Oh, right, okay. Perhaps this is your special It's a subject. deal, 
if they don't, then it's no deal. Well, Do you understand, simple. Rachel? That's yes. simple. <laughs> you sure? Deal or no deal. Deal or like, Even I can handle that. So this week, Syria. Has the EU got a free trade deal with Syria, Kate? Uh, I'm going to say deal. You're going to say deal? Yeah. Mr. Paul War. That's a bit odd. Um, I'm going to say no deal, because if we got a free trade deal with states that are Arab states like that, wouldn't that stop us having a free trade deal with Israel? I don't know. I might be wrong. No deal. Deal. Oh, oh yes. And well we have a deal Kate. with Israel as well. Oh. Yeah. Peace in our time. Yeah. Papua New Guinea. <laughs> Papua New Guinea. I thought you said Papa don't preach for a minute. Papa don't <laughs> preach. I'm no, in trouble deep. No deal. I'm going to say deal because it sounds so mad. No, no deal. Deal. Yes. Uh, <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, That's the fact of the day. Tuvula. What? Tuvula. Tuvalu. 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 I is, isn't that the name of like a Swedish pop star? A Swedish what? Pop, pop star. star. Don't know. Tuvalu. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Anyway, really I think uh, no deal. I think you're, you're chancing your arm there. Yeah, I'm going to say no deal. No deal, yeah. No deal, you're right. Uh, Iraq. Do we have a free trade deal <laughs> with Iraq? Surely not. Mr. Paul War. No. Mr. Paul War says no. Mr. Paul War says no deal. Kate? Yeah, no deal. Deal? No deal, no. you fool. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it would be good, though. Uh, get them back on their feet. Surinami. Suriname, I think you That's mean. That's the one. Good God, did you go when to When did geography? you read an atlas last? <laughs> yeah. I did, I can read it. No one's ever read it to me. <laughs> it's just the spelling. <laughs> what do you mean? You just read an atlas. Suriname. Whatever. It's not hard. It is hard. Because there's no sign of foreign word. in Italian. Oh, I'm not um, so now I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say we've got a deal. I have no idea. I'm going to say no deal. No deal. <laughs> uh, I'm going to say deal. We do have a deal with them. Wow. Uh, Kyrgyzstan. Kyrgyzstan or Kurdistan? Kyrgyzstan. Yeah, Kyrgyzstan. I'm going to say no because it's a sort of autocratic, weird country. No deal, yeah. I'm going to be controversial and say deal. It is no deal. There is no deal there. Other countries the EU does have a deal with include Costa Rica, Grenada and Mexico. We do have a deal with them. We have a deal with Mexico and South Korea as well, which is kind of the main one we have to worry about if we then have these deals rolled over. Uh, But looking at the list of the 65 countries, I've got to say, you can see why, like... A lot of people think we could do more trade deals outside the EU because there's quite a lot of economies that we don't have trade deals with. So there you can kind of see. Yeah. But anyway, there we are. Not I'm, maybe I'm listening to the Infox too much. Thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, thank you to Kate. Thank you to Paul. Thank you to Rachel. Uh, thank you uh, to Tide.co for sponsoring today's episode. And don't forget to check out the fantastic offer they're giving to our listeners at www.tide.co forward slash people. Make sure you use the promo code people and we'll see you next week thank you even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.